The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn away from our studies of Acts that we've been engaged in throughout the fall for some themes of the season for Sunday, today, and following weeks. I'm turning to what some might consider a very strange text, but it is the very first text of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. There will be those who would look at it and say, I know our pastor's a little weird, but I'm not sure he's going to be able to get a sermon out of a genealogy, a text that might seem to you to be a lot of boring, unfathomable material. I promise you has something for us to hear and understand from God. Listen as I read Matthew 1 from the first verse to the middle of the chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the Word of God. 
Last year at Christmas, my children bought me a gift that was especially memorable and enjoyable. It was a subscription to the online service called Ancestry.com. If you're not aware of this, it's a service that you access to give you entree to various, especially census records and other historical records that by putting names and dates or as much as you know about someone, you don't even have to have all the information. It links you and hooks you up in many cases to be able to trace your family line and go backwards. Now, you're not guaranteed to be able to go all the way because there are going to be breaks where information doesn't exist. But I've spent fascinated hours. I don't know how many hours. My wife had to call me three times to dinner to uh, get me away from delving into my great, 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 great grandparents with names that I hadn't even imagined. And in fact, on one side, on my mother's side, which I thought would be a more obscure side, one line kept going back and going back, and, and it was getting, you know, every time it was coming up and it was connecting, and I was thinking, why am I connecting? I'm in the 1500s. And I knew there was something happening because the names that were coming up were Cromwell. But I cannot stand here and say I'm descended from Oliver Cromwell, but I am apparently descended from a cousin of Oliver Cromwell. It was most interesting to find those kind of things out. Perhaps you're curious. You may know a lot more than I do about family history. It's a hobby with some people. I don't really know what we accomplished by knowing it, but if you've got George Washington in your background, that's good to find out. If you've got Benedict Arnold, you probably don't tell anybody about that, about that side of it. Do you know, when someone innocently begins to read the Bible, as many do, they sit down, of course, they think you start like any book at the beginning and you read, and it tends to slow the going down when you come to one of these lists of begat, 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 and so on, and a lot of names you can barely pronounce. And you think, what is this here for anyway? It just slows me down. If you hit First Chronicles and you're not in a good mood, you'll probably stop altogether because the whole book is almost all lists of ancestry. Well, when you see these things, and particularly when we see this genealogy on the first page, the beginning of the first page of the first gospel of the New Testament, we would have to know that it's here for an important reason. It doesn't seem like inspiring material. It doesn't have narrative events going on. And you might say in your mind, aha, I know that guy Matthew was a tax accountant, and oh, we all know about accountants. They just like lists of things and precise details. That's their job. Maybe you think to yourself, gee, Matthew, uh, all right, I know the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, but it would have been a good idea if some editor told you there's a better way to get started and hook people and get them interested than giving them a genealogy. But if you've asked why the Spirit of God would put this kind of a list right at the beginning of the New Testament, I assure you there's a reason. All Scripture is given by God. All Scripture is profitable in its own way. And we must assume that there are lessons for us in this passage. I want to ask, first of all, why bother with a gospel genealogy? It does seem a strange way to begin, but only to us, to a Jewish first century audience, it wasn't strange at all. It was absolutely sensible. It made every kind of good sense. Because in not only Israel, but many ancient cultures, it was extremely important who your ancestors were. 
You know, we're asked almost every week either to produce a driver's license or maybe your social security number or at least the four digits of it or something. How do you identify yourself? Well, this was the equivalent in the ancient world. Young men in particular would memorize their ancestry, which is why we think this was so neatly organized into three units of 14, because you could memorize it easily and tell people who you were. Now, we think this is an absolutely accurate rendering, that everything's in the correct order, but we do know that not every name that could have been in the list is there. It's an abridged listing, apparently constructed so that it would fit those three sets of 14. And some of the more obscure people are just left out. And so when you say someone was the father of, in a few cases, you're saying grandfather or even great-grandfather. But a, a young person could grow up and if asked, who are you? Where do you belong in Israel? They could easily tell. There were laws. Some of the more obscure laws under Moses were that you could only sell land to someone of your own tribe. If you were aspiring, you know, unlike today when anyone, a young man might come along, go to seminary, aspire to be ordained as a minister, we don't say, well, are you of the right tribe? But in that day he would have had to prove that he was of the tribe of Levi. There was a good reason why Herod the Great was was so hated by people in the time of Jesus, because here he was sort of a puppet king serving under Rome's authority. Nobody liked him. The Romans didn't especially like him. The Israelites didn't like him, primarily because he was of Jewish lineage, but his family, his ancestors had intermarried with the Edomites who were not of Israel. And so Herod was a half-breed. He didn't really belong. And ancestry was so important to him, he was so conscious of it that he and his sons were known to have destroyed a whole trove of ancestry records in Jerusalem that would have proved that some other people were of more noble standing than he was. And he wasn't going to leave, you know, the records in the file cabinets that would allow them to prove that. Ancestry mattered. And this is an establishment in a day when it mattered to tell us exactly how Jesus Christ fits. We know that in that time, people were making disparaging remarks about Jesus when he began to minister and teach and work miracles and appear to be somebody remarkable. His enemies made disparaging remarks about his origins. Mark 6, 3. Isn't this just the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters right here with us? By the way, that verse is a a, a laser refutation to the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. There's his family named. John 7, 27, people said of him, we know where this man is from. And we thought when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. Now, that was based on their ignorance because they ignored Micah 5, which told that Christ would come from Bethlehem. But in John 7.40, there were people that knew Christ would come from Bethlehem, and they didn't think Jesus came from there. They said, surely the Christ does not come from Galilee. That's where he was living. Scripture says he'll be the seed of David and from Bethlehem. You've got it right. And he was from there. They just didn't realize it. Matthew was writing to place Jesus as a real man within the line of prophecy and 
and births that would establish the Messiah of Israel. As we read this book in the first, uh, very first uh, uh, verse here, the book of the genealogy, the word genealogy is, is closely related to the word for Genesis, the word beginnings. You could, in a real sense, think just, just as the Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis, here's second Genesis, the book of the great new beginning, as God is doing another great thing, no less in any way spectacular than his creation of the universe and the world in bringing Jesus. There's an old letter that came to light. I believe it was actually discovered in the early 20th century among some old documents that somebody, we don't know who, wrote to Caesar Augustus praising him on his birthday. You could think of this as Caesar's birthday card. And the letter actually said this. I quote it. This individual said, We may rightly regard your birthday, O divine Caesar, as the beginning of all things, even in the world of nature. Your birthday, O God Augustus, that's blasphemy, but that's what they said. O God Augustus was the beginning of good news for mankind. Wow, I hope that guy got a good job or something out of, out of that kind of fawning. Everything he wrote was false. The birthday of Caesar Augustus was not the beginning of all things or the beginning of good news. The birthday of the Son of God was the best news that this world had ever heard. And so we do have before us here the placement of Jesus as God's new beginning for the world. Secondly, as we trace this family tree of Jesus, we're being assured of the fact that God always keeps his promises. His prophecies were being fulfilled. And this refers to two very specific prophecies that are fulfilled in this genealogy. That for legal purposes now, not not literal lineage, but I'll explain that in a moment. But for legal purposes, Jesus was both the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, David, we're told, must have a descendant who would be an everlasting king. Abraham must have one who comes after and who fulfills the bestowment of God's promises that all nations would be blessed. Jesus did both of these. He was the seed of David. First Chronicles 17, the Lord told David, when you go to your fathers, when you die, I, the Lord, will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Now think of the kings who occupied the throne after David. Most of them were scalawags, or almost the, the great majority of them were fairly worthless individuals, quite frankly. Solomon, the first in line after David, was the, the greatest in terms of power, grandeur, learning, discernment, authority. People came and marveled at his kingdom and ate dinner off of his gold plates. The queen of Sheba came and couldn't imagine how great Solomon was. But let me tell you, Solomon died. Solomon did not have a throne forever. It took Jesus to have the throne of David forever. And it's Remarkable as prophecy is traced through the Bible that the very last book of the Bible, last chapter of the New Testament, Revelation twenty two sixteen, actually ends by wrapping up prophecy and saying that Jesus is the root and offspring of David. That's beautiful. The Old Testament 
certified and sealed as to its fulfillment in the last chapter of the Bible. But there's also this promise about Abraham. God had said long ago to Abraham, in you all the families of the world will be blessed. Genesis 22, the Lord said to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Bible is so particular. Paul was writing in Galatians 3, and he had Genesis twenty-two eighteen in mind, and he commented on it. It's a commentary on that verse. When Paul writes to say, when the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, God did not say to your seeds, referring to many, but to your seed, referring to one, which is the Christ. That's wonderful. Here's Paul saying, Abraham was prophesying Jesus. And we see this fulfilled. Paul confirmed that in the uniqueness of Jesus, not only was Abraham's promise fulfilled, that blessing would come through his seed, his descendant, but also David's kingdom would be wrapped up. Now, I'll I'll not dwell on that too much longer, but I want to go to look at a third point here and tell you that this genealogy in Matthew 1 speaks to us about some knots, that's K-N-O-T, knots in the family tree of Jesus. There are curiosities in this genealogy that are important, even though they may look like little details. There were ethnic outsiders and even some fairly shady people in the family tree of Jesus. People who, if they were in your family tree, you wouldn't go and boast about it. Now, the one thing to observe is it's quite rare to find a woman mentioned in a Hebrew ancestry list. I'm sorry, ladies, but this was a patriarchal society. It was the father, the grandfather. If you were a woman, you would mention your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather in giving your lineage. But in this patriarchal society, here in the genealogy of no less than the Christ of God, Jesus, we have four women's names, and they're slipped in there. And here's the really interesting thing. These four women are not the noble matriarchs of Israel like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah. They are Tamar, who seduced her own father-in-law in Genesis 38. Rahab, a Canaanite, not an Israelite, who possibly was a prostitute when she aided the spies of Israel. Ruth, who was not an immoral woman, but she was an outsider, a Moabite, not an Israelite, ranking very low on the social scale before she married Boaz, and Bathsheba, who isn't even named. It's almost like you don't want to mention her name. She was the wife of Uriah. Four women, all Gentiles, the knots in Jesus' family tree. And by the way, there's some others in there. Jeconiah, who was a very evil king. Isn't this interesting? Jesus, in his genealogy, has mentioned people who were lowly, outsiders, sinful, broken, not upstanding model citizens necessarily. Is God telling us something? That Jesus is not only coming for men and women, boys and girls, Jew and Gentile, broken and whole, highly educated and ignorant. He's coming to bring a new dignity 
and an eternal future for all those people. God is going to use sinful, repentant people. They're the ones Jesus came for. He didn't come, the Scripture says, to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Even David, who is one of the most honored members of this family tree, remember him. I mean, he's the reason we have that saying, the wife of Uriah, right? Because he took another man's wife. And then King Solomon came from that union later. David was a rebel, a wayward man, a man in need of forgiveness. So was Abraham, who lied about his wife and did other dishonorable things. Isn't God saying that all of our family trees have got knots in them? People whom God wants to redeem. And here's this tree descending all the way down to the point where a very lowly nobody, Joseph of Nazareth, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the day that carpenter made his way a fairly long journey to the city of his birth, Bethlehem, to pay his taxes. How much more obscure does a human event get than that? A nobody going to pay his taxes. And in that event, God had the setting for his son to be born. Uh, You need to see for sure how this genealogy ends in verse 16 with actual evidence of the virgin birth. For this does not end as, you know, I read throughout. It would be begat if I was reading King James, but I was reading a newer version here, and so it says the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, and it comes to Joseph, and it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Who was Jesus born of? Not Joseph. Joseph was not the father. What is being established here, in other words, is a legal line that in the laws of Israel would be recognized. Jesus could legally claim this line through his adopted father, Joseph. Not his biological father. The text does not name him that. But it names rather Mary, who gave him the blood and the flesh and the genotype of his descendants from Israel. And by the way, we have another whole a whole genealogy in Luke 4 that traces it to Mary rather than to Joseph. Now, in conclusion, this. If I see an application in this text, it seems to me that the family tree of Jesus teaches us that whatever human family the Lord has placed any of us in is something of His design, known by Him, and not without significance. You know, I think somehow we're always striving in our lives to think we've got to have more perfect families than we have. Draw up in your mind, you can probably see the picture of that Norman Rockwell picture. I believe it's supposed to be of Thanksgiving, not Christmas. The grandma, you know, she's got this 45-pound butterball turkey on a platter that she's ready to put in the center of the table. And everybody is You know, they're just big smiles. And here's the glowing all-American family. Everybody's perfect. And maybe you think, I'm supposed to have one of those families. How come I didn't get issued one? Why does my family have Aunt Betty, who would certainly disagree with me on the subject of homosexuality? 
Why does my family have Uncle Joe who would curse every time the subject of the Christian church comes up? Why does my family not have present Cousin Bill who won't have anything to do with the rest of his family? Why does my family... And you go on and on. And you know, if I, if I somehow said everybody who thinks they have absolutely perfect relatives, they're all Christians, they're all glowing with health and happiness... They're all succeeding in their... Listen, Christmas letters. What do I say, you know? Biggest false advertising in the whole world. Everyone's child is great. Everyone's prospering. I write them too, but I try to be, I try to be truthful. But you know, people talk about stress at Christmas. Why do we have stress at Christmas? Because I think many times we believe... We have to somehow present our perfect family on Christmas Day so we can fulfill Norman Rockwell and assure ourselves that everything's right with our family. You know, no hair out of place, every dish delicious, everybody's happy, everybody's getting along, everybody at the table voted for the same person for president. Wait for that discussion at your house. We don't have perfect families. None of us do. We have ancestries like that of Jesus Christ who came into the world and showed how even some of the most imperfect people in his background were used by God in a redemptive way. Rahab, sheltering the spies. Ruth, putting her trust to to form that alliance with Boaz and becoming his wife. I make it very personal. My father's been gone from us for eight years now, and I, only just this week it dawned on me. My oldest son, Paul, is named for his grandfather. He's not a second or a junior, but he's named for him. And Paul is 39. My father was 39. When I, as a 12-year-old, saw my father change, not from some bad, terrible man. He was actually a very moral man but he was a spiritually empty man. And when he was 39 and I was 12, my father changed. And it lasted until he was 82 and went into the presence of the Lord. My father changed. And four of us children in his home not only saw the change, but absorbed the change in our own lives and all that it meant. Devotions in our home, a dad who spoke openly about Christ and read the Bible and prayed, and what he had was not an act. It was absolutely authentic. And now I think he being dead, the Scripture says in one place, yet speaks. He has never seen and will not see on earth most of his great-grandchildren. And they see a picture on our refrigerator of him and my mom together. That's all they know. Who's that old fellow? He being dead, yet speaks. He lives in the lives of those people because God through him brought grace in a whole new wonderful way into our family. One David who can turn in the midst of his sin and say, oh God, I have sinned against you and you only and bow and seek God's forgiveness changes a household. Suddenly that alliance with Bathsheba, sure, it was still tragic. Uriah was still dead by David's planning, and and it started out in adultery, but God honored that household to bring Solomon's kingdom through it. 
Our families are like dry irrigation ditches in a farmer's field, waiting for the flowing streams of God's grace to pour through. You can't change your ancestry. You can't change your parentage, where you came from or what's happened to you, or maybe even abusive, terrible, hard things that you have to forgive for someone in your past. But you can change your effect on the people that come after you. That's the grace of God, the redemptive grace of God through Jesus Christ that's available to change families. Will you seek to be a strategic branch on your family tree? praying for. That's the biggest thing you can do, folks. I'm not suggesting you have to preach a sermon at the Christmas dinner table. That's probably not really wise, as a matter of fact. But can you pray for? Consistently, persistently pray for the people in your family and ask God that the fruit of grace would hang heavy on the boughs of your family tree. Now, and for many years to come. Through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, it can happen. Let's pray. Father, you put each of us in a very unique position. Each of us has a whole complex line extending backward into the past. And as you, Terry, as Jesus waits his return, a line going forward, whether or not we're parents, we still influence many whom we love. Our Father, I pray that you would use our witness to be authentic and genuine and passionate as we pray for and witness by authentic lives before these ones in whom you've put us in their midst. May this be seen over the years. We won't see it right away, Lord, but it will be seen as you bring your results. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.